Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Sherman, the Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President for Health Services at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. Harvard Pilgrim is a New England-based regional health plan with 1.25 million members. It has been ranked number one by the NCQA for the past 10 years. Michael holds bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Pennsylvania in medical anthropology. He attended Yale Medical School and is a board-certified cardiac anesthesiologist. In the mid-1990s, he made the decision to pursue an MBA at Harvard Business School with the thought that he would seek to blend together his clinical expertise with a business education, but he was sure of one thing, that he would never work for an insurance plan. In this podcast, he tells the story of his career, about becoming a physician, making the transition to executive leadership, and how he ultimately worked for three insurers, ironically the payers he said he would not work for. Michael's career involves a great deal of serendipity, but it also shows his deliberateness as he worked to develop the skills he knew he needed to progress as an executive by gaining exposure and experience in a wide array of organizations. He is also quite candid about his successes and challenges, which shows that the road to senior leadership is never smooth sailing. His discussion of the work he is doing with value-based payment and bundling at Harvard Pilgrim is particularly useful and timely. It is very popular to demonize health insurers, but Michael's efforts to create win-win arrangements between Harvard Pilgrim and its partners in the provider community shows what is actually possible. It is interesting to see how his passion for developing these agreements meshes with a recurring theme of negotiations from different points in his career leading up to his current role. You are listening to the abridged version of this interview. The full interview is also available on our webpage, healthleaderforge.org, along with an outline of the interview and links to the organizations and papers discussed in the podcast. In this abridged version of the interview, I start with three short segments about professional credentials, and then we skip forward to Michael's experience working for United Health Group, Humana, and finally, Harvard Pilgrim. The first question I ask Michael is about when he knew he was a physician. I wanted to ask you, society holds physicians in a high regard, and being a physician is usually an important part of a person's identity once kind of you achieve that. Um, when did you really feel like you had become a physician? Meaning, when had you internalized that as a professional identity? That's that's a great question, and um, I, you know, I think it varies among individuals. For me, it was my last year of residency training. Okay. And I think as a medical student, you're you're not a physician; you're a doctor in training, and 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 you're aware of that. And society may be impressed that you're a medical student. You're you're there thinking, how little do you know about it, any <laughs> one subject? Right. And even when you finish and you know intern resident, you're you're still in learning mode, and um, you know you, you obviously you finish medical school, you're called doctor, you are legally a physician, but I, I think it's really a question: when do you feel competent? When do you feel confident that you can manage a situation? And and again, that's not a point in time, that's a process. 
But I think by the time you're in your final year of residency and, and again, leading a team and managing others and you're the one who is um, looked to in a crisis, th that's when it, it all comes together and, and you develop that self-confidence and, and uh, you know, that cultural association. Okay. Michael had successfully become a board-certified cardiac anesthesiologist before deciding to go back to business school. The following is part of his response to my question about why he would do that when he already had a valuable credential that could have carried him through a successful career. This was the early 90s. We had a health care reform version 1.0, uh, Hillary Care, as you recall. Right, right. So the entire medical profession thought they would all be out of business within a year or two. And, the, and you, you laugh, but there was actually a collective sense of depression among many specialties about what the world would look like. And of course, the world did not end, and it's not ending now with the ACA. But there was a lot of angst. And um, you know, I remember a lot of, you had a lot of physicians going into sales or investment management or things that were tangentially, if that, you know, tied to medicine, real estate. There was, now, again, that was a bit of an overreaction, but so there, but there was a thought process of, you know, what do I need to do to be positioned well for the future? Yeah. There was also more going on in the business side. So at that point, there were some physician practice management organizations that were buying up practices, and they had names like Vicor and Med Partners, and um, and many of them did blow up. Coastal physicians, particularly, destroyed tens of billions of dollars in shareholder value, and they, they forgot some basic lessons. Like once you buy a practice, and the physicians aren't employees, they may not actually work as hard as they did before. But you know, which again sounds some, some agency now. issues. Just yeah. Some, yeah, just some agency <laughs> issues. So. But that was kind of the heyday, so I saw all this going on and, you know, hospitals creating new lines of service and things, and I thought, I, you know, I have an interest in that. I could be doing that, but no one, I don't have the knowledge and I, no one's going to take me seriously. You're just a doc. Right. So, um, you know, I, I need both to learn and to, to get some credibility. In this next segment, Michael addresses the importance of achieving professional competence and credentials as a board-certified physician before trying to make the transition to business leadership. I feel strongly that, that I, I did it, I think, the right way um, in terms of be, you know, first establishing myself as a physician, gaining that credibility, yeah. and then going to, to business school. And now you see more people going directly from medical school to business school and never doing a residency, or I've seen people leave residencies, and I get their resumes, and th there are certain positions they can take, yeah. um, but they're not helpful in terms of any type of physician leadership role because they don't have the credibility as a physician, the idea that others, physicians, nurses, others in a clinical environment will actually listen to them and respect them. So it it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about your identity and establishing your identity as a physician. You said you had to kind of establish yourself. It was a procedure. You had to um, feel competent in your skills. If you've never practiced, then how yeah. would you feel? Yeah. So again, it depends what you want to do. I mean, if you're in yeah. investment management, it may not be critical, and yeah. some people do that, and, and that, that's valid. But I also get resumes from others, and even you know, not you, you've got to, have, you know, have obviously an MD. You've got to have completed a residency. You have to be board certified to work in this type of environment. And and some people have questioned. We've gotten resumes from people who are not board certified, and, and I, I, I've been been very black and white. Absolutely not. Won't even consider them. And, and the reason for that is very simple. As someone in my kind of role, where I'm making policy decisions and, and decisions that affect over a million people, frequently there are those, such as physicians or hospital exec or others, who don't like the decision. And they're going to try to find every reason they can to impugn your integrity or capability if they don't agree with it, even if it's the right decision. 
and again generally it's those who have dollars to lose in in the, in the argument and if you are, do not have that credibility or are not board certified, they, they, they can point to you and say, well, you're, you're in the role you're at because you could not cut in clinical practice. So I think it's very important for this kind of role to establish that credibility and, and to be able to talk intelligently and to have been in the trenches. In the full interview, Michael describes his roles at several different organizations following business school. While working at Thomson Reuters, Michael was recruited by United Health Group and he made the decision to join United Health, though not initially working in one of their health plans. So you did leave Thompson and you moved on to United Health. Yeah. What was what were your roles there? You did several roles there. I did. So again, that was um, very turbulent as well. It was interesting. I learned a lot, and and even the way I, I got recruited there was kind of interesting. So I I, I had been thinking about leaving, as I mentioned, I, because some of the cultural elements were not you know made it hard to put in place the kind of culture I wanted. Right. And I, I got a call from a recruiter at United Healthcare. And and they were they actually wanted to buy our company and Thompson didn't want to sell, so they were they were aggressively trying to pick off people. And and I, I kind of said I view them as kind of this evil empire. Um, United but, yeah, Health well, at that, or, or at that point. No, yeah, United at that point. <laughs> okay. And again, I, I didn't once I got there, but you know, yeah. we, we competed with part of their business. Okay. And, okay. Uh, you know, they were they, they were viewed as being kind of a tough environment. Well, they're an enormous company. Yeah, they are, and yeah. they 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 were and they are even more yeah. so. So you know, I, I didn't really. It never even occurred to me to go there, and it would not probably not have looked. And I, I got a call from a recruiter and said, I, I understand from your background, you worked at this other startup, Health Allies, and I said, Yeah. And they said, oh, yeah, and they'd acquired Health Allies. Right. And they said, do you know this person who was uh, one of the key people there who'd stayed with them? And I said, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I could afford to be a smart ass. And, and I said to the recruiter, I don't know, that depends. Do you like that person <laughs> at United? And they said, oh, yeah, he's very well respected. Um, and he's in a senior role at, at now at even more within United. Oh, so I said, oh, in that case, I, I know him. And so, you know, 10 minutes later, the phone rings, it's this person, they're in kind of recruitment cell mode. Okay. And, and next thing, you know, they're, they're trying to find a position offering, you know, that, that is interesting enough for me to go to. So they were really looking for you, yes. not necessarily to fill out anything particular. At they that just point, wanted you yes. on the team. Yes. Neat. Okay. Which is a good way to hire talent, yeah. actually. Okay. And so, make a long story short, United, if they want to recruit you, will. Okay. And, you know, they're flying my wife and I and having, showing us homes and, you know, saying if you have trouble selling your old home, we'll buy it. I mean, you know, they, they, they made it, they, they removed any barriers. Okay. And so I went there and it was a, overall a good, but a very turbulent experience. And they're, they're a solid organization, very well managed. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot at Thompson also about good management. I mean, it was a tough organization, but about set, setting targets and around performance management and strategic planning. I mean, they really did everything the right way there. And after a couple of startups and company DeVita, which did it on the fly, it was something I actually needed to experience and needed to learn. Okay. So that was, and, and I learned quite a bit of that at United as well, really about being focused on the objectives and et cetera. Okay. So the only challenge with the United was, so they recruited me into role, um, uh, and helping roll out the new Part D business, which was brand new then in 2006, it was mid-2005, so it was building for that. And as being part of that senior team, and it was, again, very exciting and intellectually challenging, I, I knew I'd learn a lot. The only problem there was that a couple of weeks after I joined, they mentioned something that they didn't bring up during the recruitment process, and that's they were about to buy a small company called Pacific Air. And as most people know, uh, 
any merger, particularly one of that size, creates chaos for a long time as you try to figure out how the pieces fit together. And it created a lot of chaos. So I was in that role in Part D for a little under a year. And then they came to me and said, uh, and this is how big companies work sometimes, and they said, you know, we, um, we had the president of the Part D business for United and the president for Pacific Air. And we didn't know what to do with the person. We decided we're giving the president role from United to the United person for the combined entity. And we, we couldn't figure out what to do with the Pacific Air guy, so we gave him your job. I'm like, oh, okay. really? Um, <laughs> Uh, that, that's interesting. What do I do now? Oh, you can go over to Ingenix, which was a part that competed most closely with where I'd been, which is really with, where they with wanted Thompson. me. Which is really where they wanted me in the this first place. This was the place. evil, evil empire side. Yeah. So, so now you're now so you're now in they, the evil empire. This is actually very calculated that I wouldn't go to that company, but they recruited me and then ah. moved me over. So once you and were in, I'm like, do I have a choice? Well, well, no. So um, I'm like, okay. So I went there, and again, it was it was. Interesting and chaotic. Ingenix, now part of Optum, is very high growth, but it was also kind of going, you know, we'll find a role for you. So I, I actually had two or three jobs in under a year. And at that point, there was so much turbulence that, you know, that I, you know, that I felt it was hard to get things done. In one case, I was put in charge of several businesses that, and, and went in at, and said, here's our three year target to, to grow revenue. And they kind of rolled their eyes. And it's because I was the fifth person in five years who'd been trying to teach them that. So ah. there was, um, they were growing so rapidly then that I think they were spending less time on managing and on thinking how they put the pieces together. I see. And so I ended up, I said, I want to get out of here. Went to, and this is, again, part networking. I went to the chief medical officer for all of United, who I'd become friendly with. And I said, Reed, got any suggestions? I'm kind of frustrated. And so he said, yes, they were doing some really innovative work on different payment models and medical home, et cetera, and let me introduce you to so-and-so. And I wound up doing some work on the primary Carolina business side. So the interesting thing here is I'd never intended or wanted to work for a traditional commercial health plan. And I end up there, not, not intentionally, because I was yeah. looking to make a move out of one area to come to another. That's what it's about. And I became more, sort of working on this medical home Area which was has become very big and very timely. I didn't know that then, right? But it was it was all about the start of how do we go from telling docs what not to do and, and what to do, et cetera, to creating incentives and aligning with them and, and collaborating and finding ways to pay them more for doing things that create value, which is really something I'm passionate about. Yeah. So I did that for a while, and Umana then had a uh, role which uh, came to my attention. It was a new role, and you know, I, I felt that I was kind of moving all over the place within United, and it was unclear. It, was, it still appeared to be very chaotic, so I was craving a bit of stability, and so I, um, you know, I, and I'll also add that I, um, I do a lot of things right, not necessarily in the right order. So now here I am, uh, 54, and I have a, uh, a daughter who's uh, five and a half. So at that point, you know, I felt like it was ne you know, the time was never right, focused on the career, and then all of a sudden it becomes important as you get older. So the other thing that was going through my head is, you know, I don't want to move every couple of years now. I want to uh, think more clearly about the environment and more stability, which, again, to earlier hadn't been important, which was, it was a benefit, I think, in career management at the yeah. point. But, so um, the, uh, this opportunity came up with Humana, and what they wanted was someone to develop and manage a new department, which is something, I, again, I like doing, physician strategies. And the idea was to be a um, 
department that really worked closely on developing different models for working with physicians like medical home or different types of pay for performance or other models that align incentives and got away from the fee for service and this is becoming more and more important but this was you know for, for a step for Humana and then the other thing is I, I was worried about whether it was a big enough role for me and so in the discussion they agreed to make to make it a, a, a more robust role by also moving oversight for their medical directors, what they call their market medical officers, not those doing reviews, but the outside facing medical directors who were across the markets, there were about 15, and they moved them under me from a dotted line perspective. So they reported into the market presidents and had a dotted line into me. So it provided a more, more robust role, but also since the pilots we were, were trying to develop needed to be done somewhere, it also provided kind of distribution for that, if you would. And so it worked well together, and I, you know, built up a team there and hired people, including people who had worked for me before. It's something I'd done at United. It was something I did there. I've learned if you develop a reputation for integrity and people trust you, they'll follow you, and you know which people you want to recruit away. Yeah. So that that was uh, very helpful. Um, so is this the first time you're managing geographically distributed yes. organizations? Yes. Yes. How was that transition for you? It was challenging, but I, I you know. I, but I, you know, ultimately, I think it went well. Matrix organizations are are, are tough, and um, you know, one of the challenges with with that was the fact that in um, in different, what I realized is the medical directors, their um, their experience was determined more by the market than by me. So I could try to create a culture, and really create it almost something where I want to be viewed as a coach and a resource and an ally versus top down because. It was dotted line. You really had to manage by influence. So, um, but but the fact is, if you think about their lives, I might speak with them and do a call weekly, and or you know, and and visit, try to visit them at least, and, and chat with them, and visit their markets uh, once or twice a year, and bring all the group, all the medical directors together, let's say twice a year. So I was trying to do my part to build the right culture and the right incentives. But if you think about it, if you're in the New Orleans office as a medical director, you're going to work every day in the New Orleans office and you're working with their salespeople and their market presidents and others. And so what they experience in terms of a culture and in terms of just, you know, the whole environment is determined far more by that office than by me. Right. And different, you know, different offices had different cultures. You might imagine New Orleans and Arizona and Illinois, very different in terms of uh, what's considered uh, yeah. appropriate, as you might imagine, yeah. um, yep. you know, in terms of even alcohol consumption, which you can imagine, um, New Orleans Mar Mardi Gras time. Yeah. I, I used to like to visit that office. <laughs> but, um, but it, so, and, and then there, the market presidents who also significantly influenced their experience also were very different. At that point, Umana was trying to move from market presidents who were salespeople to those who were general managers. So again, sometimes, the medical directors were challenged by how they worked with the market presidents. And then you had market presidents who were very good at collaborating, which is what you need in a matrix organization. And there were those who said, you know, just take your cue from me. Yeah. And, you know, we're, you don't have to listen, you don't, to, don't listen to anyone at yeah. corporate. You know, we, we need to work around them. Yeah. So um, what I found, there, there were big differences. And, um, you know, you you did your best and, you know, and tried to build really. So I, I worked hard to build relationships with the market presence and with their bosses, the regional CEOs, 
So when it, whenever I visited market, I spent time with them and made sure we agreed on performance goals and built that sort of relationship as well, which I thought was important, which which helped over time, you know, get to a better point. Particularly as some people left and I became involved in recruiting. Anytime you inherit people, that's another lesson. Their loyalties may be may or may not be to you. And when you when you hire someone from scratch, you can kind of build that relationship and make sure you're getting the right person, which is, which is a good lesson to learn early on. Uh, the other lesson from UMAD was understanding where the opportunities are and that the job as defined by someone else may not be the way to do it best. And that's on you, not on your boss necessarily. Okay. So in, in this situation, um, UMANA, my role lived in the commercial organization. That's where they recruited me. That's where I, I reported up. And I, I quickly realized that UMANA was challenged in the commercial area but really hitting it out of the part in Medicare Advantage. And even uh, looking forward, you know, a number of years to um, just now, you know, 2015, you know, it's just been announced that Umana is being acquired by Aetna. And the reason is for their Medicare Advantage business. If you're okay. on the commercial side, you may be uh, looking around for something different to do, but it's really for the Medicare Advantage business where they're strong. So uh, even at that point, though, I realized that is where they were stronger. That's where the growth was focused, and that's where they were making most of their money from a business perspective. But I was on the commercial side. Okay. So what I did is I created relationships with a Medicare organization, starting with the Medicare CEO. And, and, I, and I realized the type of things we're doing for commercial, improving value, decreasing cost, improving quality, are equally important for the Medicare population. So even though I didn't formally report in there, one of my personal objectives was to have them under, I had to educate them what we did. And you know, before you know it, they had me speaking, they'd be playing together their whole leadership, you know, which could be 300 people, and were giving me time to talk about what, what I was doing and featuring me on calls with their leadership. So, and it was really about here's what I'm doing, here's how it can help you. Again, this needed to be not, here's what I'm doing. That's also a mindset change. You know, it's not, here's what I do, but anytime you speak before a group, understand what they want out of it. What aspect is of interest them and think about how you position that. So I'm like, here's the things we're doing, here's why you should care. And so before you, you know it, we're doing these a lot of these things for Medicare too. So I saw that white space and rather than have them create a team themselves, which could have happened, they had some duplication in Medicare versus commercial because they were set up consciously that way. I said, we're, we're a corporate resource, and even though the people I reported up to didn't always appreciate it initially, it turned out after some restructuring to be a very smart move. Sure. Yeah. So we supported them as well, but it was something okay. which I led rather than was told to do because I saw that as a need. Okay. So at Humana, you were working really kind of on this idea of, of value added as opposed to, and trying to get away from kind of an encounter-based fee-for-service. What initiatives were you really putting into place there? So there we were looking at things like medical homes, we were, we're, you know, which pay additional care coordin coordination fees to practices for doing things differently that deliver value in which themselves can reduce hopefully ER visitor hospitalizations. So the whole point we were doing other things around pay for performance similarly. So the whole point was in thinking if the system is set up for fee-for-service, which everyone agrees is a, probably a bad idea, not how you would design something from the scratch. I mean, w there's a reason we're uh, across the world seen as a low-value system with high cost and uh, outcomes that are, are not where they should be. And it's that we pay for the wrong things. 
So um, I think most of us agree that we need to move to, toward a different types of payment system. But it's, you know, it's easier said than done, particularly if you're talking about provider entities that are built on fee-for-service. If you go to them and just try to get them to do things that reduce ER visits or readmissions, et cetera, again, they may agree intellectually they're the right things to do. No one is in favor of readmissions, but it hurts them financially. So it means that they may not actually be as effective in managing it and certainly aren't going to spend a lot of effort on that. So it's one of the few industries where rework means you pay more. You know, I remember that as a um, as a fellow where we had someone who's um, having a revision of their of their bypass grafts, and it's because the surgeon um, had bypassed the wrong graft. That's a big deal. In other words, they bypassed a healthy vessel and missed a disease. And that's a really bad error, by the way. And yeah. then afterwards, the patient had chest pain, and they realized, oops, that should never happen. But it did happen. And but the system paid again. For the corrective surgery, as opposed to are you, you know, I mean, yeah. which is nuts. You broke it, you fix it. And yeah. you know, the other thing, um, which I guess influenced me, and it's funny how the pieces all come together at some point. So, when I was in business school, one of the, um, and they were all great courses, but one of the really, really important courses I took was something uh, called CCMO, Coordination, Control, and Management of Organizations, and it was really a lot about thinking about the incentives that are in place and what it means for the costs incurred by different parties and how you create the right systems, wh whether related to sales compensation or CEOs or equity ownership, et cetera. And so we talked about things like, you know, how come uh, senior leadership wants a corporate jet because most of the cost is being borne by other people, et cetera. And, and so think about these kind of incentives. And the course focused heavily on, on many of these. And so, you know, it, it's clearly you get into health can you realize that these sort of lessons, which most other industries have learned, are not being practiced in healthcare. And now as we've gone forward with the ACA, which is, I would say, insurance reform, not healthcare reform, so we've, the good news is we've given um, access to care to many more people, but, but the bad news is uh, we've given access to a high-cost, dysfunctional system to many more people. So now there's much more pressure to driving toward value since we're at a point uh, where with, you know, you read about premium increases and like, that's because care is expensive. And we're at a point where with these high-cost drugs, for example, either you individually are paying for it or everyone is paying for it. And the idea that the payer is paying for it isn't really true because the, the money's coming from one of those two sources. So but we're under more and more pressure now in this environment to think about how we manage expenses. And again, we, what we want to do, we don't want to be in the business of saying yes or no, particularly when we're not in the exam room with a patient. I mean, we'll look at the evidence and put together policies in place that reflect uh, evidence-driven medicine. But at the end of the day, the doc is in the exam room with a patient, and they're in the position best influences. And, and it, if you, so if you want to think about how best to influence care, think about the right policies and tools, but also about incentives that, that reinforce that. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do with how we work with different systems. And so if you look at what we're doing, so we were, we were taking baby steps at Humana. Now it's become even more important, both for Humana and all the payers and for Harvard Pilgrim. And the, one of the reasons I took this particular CMO role was it, it's really where they wanted me to focus. Okay. And not just on utilization management and, and more of saying no on the nuts and bolts and maybe stuff but thinking strategically, how do we make the system work better? So let's 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 talk now about Harvard Pilgrim. So you, you spent about four years at, at Humana mm -hmm. and then you made the transition over to Harvard Pilgrim where you are here today. Yes. 
So before we talk about your role, can you tell me a little bit about, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and, and kind of what, what makes it special? Yeah, it really is a um, unique organization. We're not part of Harvard University, although it, it was actually created by the dean and spun off a little over 40 years ago, the dean of the med school, but it, but it technically is not part of Harvard University. They are a customer, but we have to compete for their business. Okay. We are a um, not-for-profit insurer. In recent years, very not-for-profit, but uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's a positive, and our stakeholders understand we, you know, we care about doing the right thing, and you know, we want to make a little margin so we can stay in business and invest in new areas. But it's not about returning dollars to shareholders, which it, I right. think is an advantage. It's about using okay. dollars for medical service. Yeah. Um, and this is a contrast to Humana, which is a for-profit, quite public company. Quite yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it, you know, it's nice not having those things impacting your your thought process and and being able to be fun. But we still need to break even or a little bit better, hopefully, and you know, and and manage medical expenses for our employee employer customers because the markets exchanges employers that, that they've had enough of, of rising costs and they expect us to be doing something. And and you know, more broadly, if you think about how the environment is reconfiguring, if we don't deliver value, why should we exist in this new world? So if, if health plans can't indicate why they're more than just a card in their in your wallet and why they make a difference they shouldn't exist so you know we're, right. we're trying to do a lot around population health and okay. uh, innovative plan design how we work with providers etc but but you know but to your point more and more of these models are becoming critically important in putting these out in place and working with the physicians what are the primary business lines for the for the organization so um, we, um, so again, we, we're, we have about one and a quarter million members. We're in New England, Maine, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and, uh, and Massachusetts. Massachusetts is our largest, our largest number of members. And, but we're primarily in commercial and recently re-entered Medicare Advantage about a year and a half ago. So, okay. um, but primarily commercial historically. Some other things that differentiate us. First of all, we, we genuinely care about quality. And, you know, I think in a world where health plans are reviewed a little bit askance, only slightly better than, than elected officials, in Congress, uh, we, we don't fall into that bucket. Um, we're viewed as part of the community. Um, we care deeply in some cases, and frequently we, we've made decisions that may be you know, questionable with the evidence, but just driven to want to do the right thing. So, so even where we have policies or evidence that says, you know, by the book, you would not, you know, they, they purchased something with 20 PT visits, just a plan design, black and white. And they need more to be, to to continue to recover. We we frequently do approve more, so we do more than we have to. We try to think what the right thing is for the individual, even though we're under a lot of pressure to manage costs by trying to impact in inappropriate care, for example. But so we do, we, you know, we do have a quality focus. We, you know, we were ranked number ten, number one in the country by NCQA, the National Quali Committee on Quality Assurance, for ten years, That's based amazing. on quality um, out of all the plans in the country. And, and it is, and um, it reflects the fact this is how we do business every day. We don't treat this as an exam to study for when they do the survey. We care about our members. We, we focus on identifying gaps in quality, HEDA scores, and, 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 and um, closing them, et cetera. So we're lucky to have a great provider environment here, but when you're number one for 10 years in a row, it's, it's, not, you know, it's not statistical uh, 
right. you know, right. it's not an accident. accident. That, that. Um, and you know, I remember when I came here, you know, um, I, you know, I was in awe of it, uh, of their performance, and NTQ had actually just stopped ranking. They, they, they decided to stop doing that, and now we're kind of trenches, if you would, have kind of excellent, very good, et cetera. But I remember meeting the people that did that, and you know, one of the things that any new organization is determining where do you focus and where do you not mess with it. And, and I said, look, I'm coming from an organization uh, which had multiple health plans ranked in different parts of the country, and I think their highest ranked plan was like number 50 or 60. Um, I'm going to stay out of your way. I'm going to. I'm not going to um, pretend that I can actually help you do your jobs better. I'm going to stay out of your way in this area and just tell me what you need, yeah. which I, th I think w was was a good move. So um, the other thing about Harvard Pilgrim, we we have our own institute for, that does research, which is a terrific resource for helping validate a lot of these cool things we're doing. And our institute actually incorporates the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School, where That's I have the uh, pleasure of chairing their board of managers there and have a faculty appointment. So um, one of the surprises is that the chair of that actually reports to me and actually dotted line to the dean of Harvard Med School. Wow. And I, I don't provide a lot of direction to this person because he's incredible and way smarter than me. <laughs> so again, I'm there. I try to help, but I, I really tr also try to stay out of his way because you know he's tenured Harvard faculty and, and just is brilliant at what he does, right. the type of studies they do. And they actually do a lot of the research for FDA with their Sentinel project where they use data from across the country in an appropriate way to identify early indicators of adverse drug reactions or other type of events, for example. So it, it's, it's a great part of my job that I enjoy. And you know, they, they're just an incredible organization. And it, it is a unique relationship. The way I explain it to people, if you go over to Harvard Med School or any med school and you ask where the Department of Anatomy is, they'll point to a building. And if you ask where the Department of Physiology is, they'll point to a wing. And if you ask where the Department of Surgery is, they'll say, oh, there's no Department of Surgery here on this campus. You've got to go over to the teaching hospital. And by analogy, if you ask, where's the Department of Population Medicine, they'll say it is part of Harvard Pilgrim, which is a good place for it to be. So a lot of collaboration there, and it adds a dimension to the role that I would not otherwise have, which, is, which also makes it very attractive. That's neat. So you were hired on as the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Harvard Pilgrim. What does that position involve? Well, ultimately, I'm accountable for the quality and, as part of that, the cost and value of the over $2 billion we spend on, on health care every year. And it's really thinking about how are we cost effective in managing, um, really, the, 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 what we sell to our, um, to our customers. And so if you think about the components of that, that's, I, I have a pretty broad uh, accountability, both um, strategically and operationally. So in addition to the, the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, which I mentioned, um, my areas include pharmacy, including managing our formulary and I chair our P&T committee, and we've got a team, and we actually do our own rebate contracting directly with manufacturers, which um, many organizations our size uh, choose to leave to the PPM, but we think we can do that effectively. There is our wellness area. We're providing our wellness platform and incentives and working with employers. Our clinical quality area, working on the HEDIS and, and other scores and, and working to close gaps in care and improve the quality of care that our members receive. There is our care management disease management. We have over 100 nurses who work from home providing either wellness coaching or diabetes or oncology disease management programs or complex case management to help serve our members better. We also have our, our clinical policy area and regulatory areas. Member appeals and grievances also reports up. 
And then there is um, our network medical management area, which is very near and dear to my heart, which I've worked with closely since being here. And that's the area that develops all of these innovative care management models and other ways, ways of working with provider entities to figure out what are the right models. If we say, let's pay you for value, that doesn't mean anything. So right. they work in actually developing and piloting and putting in place these, these models. Okay. And then finally, a department that did not exist when I joined, medical informatics. And that's something where I saw, I asked people, how do you get the information you need? And having worked at companies like Ingenix and, and uh, Thompson, I understood the importance. And when I asked, how do you get the information you need, I got an answer, well, it depends who you know. Which said, which told me uh, there was a problem. So I put together. A so business there was no case, corporate solution at that point. But we put together a business case, and we put together a new department and licensed some tools. And you know, and that's now really critically important, both to finding variation and improvement opportunities for cost or quality, and even more important now, for as we work with provider groups under these new models, we need to give them the tools and dashboards and the like. This is now critical. This is not nice to have. This is important. If we're going to give them greater accountability and they're going to take risk, how do we give them the the tools that they need to actually manage the population. So, the, the, so it's kind of a broad swath, and then also kind of strategic planning for our area, and then uh, working across the organization on many initiatives, working with the product people and supporting sales, et cetera. So coming back to our discussion earlier about value-based compensation, you, you've actually written a couple of articles about some of the efforts that you guys are, are attempting to do here. In your article, Paying for Value, What's Next?, uh, you say that the challenge now is about how to transform our system to one that rewards value. And, uh, I was just looking at some statistics and it said that, you know, we had talked a minute ago about uh, fee-for-service. And back in 88, some 73% of employer plans were fee-for-service and today we're down to about 1%. Mm -hmm. So how are, you, how are you going about this process of shifting towards one that rewards value? Yeah, so, um, you know, again, we, we had a, a um, experiment with capitation in the 90s, and, and a lot of people feel that did not end well. And so what I think was learned at that point is giving docs a set amount of money and saying, you know, deliver the most cost-effective care possible, which then it's not going to be the cheapest care possible, is, is not really a good means for long-term success. And so what's changed is that everybody gets that and we realize we need to, to, to talk about outcomes. We talk less about cost and more about value. What, it, what are the outcomes you're getting for, for that cost? So if you can think about it, quality over cost, if you would. So we're really trying to, to agree first on the outcomes and then what does it take to get there and coming up with fair payment that incentivizes physicians to think about what the right things are to do and not to think about what the things that, that get them paid the most. So for example, if you can manage a population and keep them out of the ER, and um, that, let's say a diabetic, and keep them out of the, the hospital and out of the ICU with the diabetic acidosis, that's a good thing, obviously. Uh, yet, if there are things you can do, let's say telephonic or, or virtual visits that aren't compensated that you won't employ, that, that's a disconnect. So it's really trying to get away from you're doing what gets you a billable CPT code which again, I don't even, and you could view that on an ethical framework, but there's also the real world framework is that they have their own salaries to pay and infrastructure. So you have to think about doing things that are sustainable long-term that are a win-win. So we've tried to come up with the right outcome. So we're spending much more time on the right outcome models. We've got more sophisticated informatic systems to share data as we go. So it's not just here's some goals, but we'll meet with you regularly so you know how you're doing and provide you some portals and other informatic tools so you can manage the population better. 
it's having the population tools that we have that we can w embed into these models to support the providers, whether complex case management or other types of programs. And, but it's also being flexible. And one of the big ideas is that one size doesn't fit all. And, and so another learning is if you tell docs either it will capitate you or, or else not at all and you'll be disadvantaged, that may not be the right thing to do to force docs to take risk they're not ready for. And so what we've tried to do is come up with a more graduated approach and the idea that we want to pay everyone for value, uh, but we realize that you may have a different level of sophistication or a different level of um, comfort than, than another group. So no matter what your level of population health sophistication or your ability to manage risk or your willingness to manage risk, um, we want something on the menu for you. So for example, we have at a population level, we have maybe 10% of our members who are fully capitated by groups that are very good at, at doing that. And again, we, we're very clear on what the equality measures are so that we're not paying, it's not the goal isn't, you don't want the lowest cost provider, I don't want that for my family, you want the highest value. So it's designed to, to, to support that. But we also have a large number of, of our providers, um, the majority certainly in eastern Massachusetts for at least a portion of their population who are in one of these models other than fee-for-service. So for example, if you're not ready for full risk, maybe you're in a shared savings or shared risk model. So a shared savings model looks at the overall cost of care for your patients who are attributed to you, whether it's money paid to you as a doc or spent on imaging or you know, or ERs or drugs or things that didn't go in your pocket. And it looks at the year-over-year -year trend for that population versus a broader population. And if your population does better, you get some of that savings. And in a shared risk model, you get some of that savings, even more of that share. But if it goes in the other direction, you may have to pay something back. Okay. So we're providing a pathway to acquire com um, comfort and to work at different levels of risk with the idea of being paid for outcomes. We don't want you to say, I'm not ready for full capitation, can't work with you. And the other area where we've been very innovative, you want to think of the other axis, is these are great if you're comfortable managing a population, if you're configured to manage a population. What if you're a really good oncology group? What if you're good at orthopedic surgery, diabetes? Those models don't really help you. Right. So we've, so we've, because those models are primarily primary care. Well, they're population based population they're for based, all right. aspects. So okay. if you're a large system like a Leahy, a Beth Israel Deaconess, okay. Okay. Um, Atreus, et cetera, those, th okay. those can work well for yeah. you. But if yeah. you're New England Baptist and your expertise is orthopedics, I see. I see what you, you mean. don't kind of own the patient, but you can't influence a lot of that. Right. So what we've done is try to look at, at what's on the menu for those groups kind of on another axis, if you would. So we've, you know, we've done a lot with medical homes for primary care. We sat down with an oncology group and we said, let's figure out a model that works for you. Let's look at the medical home model white out the things that don't make sense and let's talk together. We're not bringing this to you, do it or else. Let's talk about the things you can do that can impact care, that can improve quality, reduce inappropriate care, whether it's unneeded ER or end-of-life care that isn't appropriate, et cetera. What are things you can do, but which you're not doing today in part because you're not paid for or they're not part of the expectations. And let's build up that model where let's agree on those are the expectations and the outcomes and uh, we'll pay you differently in a way. We'll pay you base fee for service, but an additional care coordination fee that reflects that savings. And we're doing that with a large series of practices, Commonwealth Hematology Oncology, which recently got acquired by Dana-Farr, but, but, but they're still maintaining them as community practices and we're working with them and that's gotten a lot of attention has been successful. Um, we're doing bundled payments for procedures, whether it's for cabbages or even for colonoscopies, the idea that if we agree on 
uh, on a procedure and the right trigger and the right period of time, and we pay you uh, in a way that's fixed, you're going to figure out what have you been doing that doesn't need to be done, whether it's around post-op care or rehab or unnecessary lab work, and stop doing it. And, and we design these in a way that we and the provider practices share in that saving. So we look at what we think it'll cost, and we share some of these data models transparently, and we will show them, look, a lot of the patients here are going to ERs because they don't have post-op pain management. If you, have, if you think more about prescriptions and about providing access after hours to someone who can call on a script and we can eliminate those, think of the dollars that go into this. So we're, we're clear about what we think the drivers are. We also, we also want to make this a win-win. So this is not a one-off negotiation like buying a car. At the end of the year, we want everyone to say, this is great, let's continue it. Not you had smarted us because we didn't yeah. think about that. Because you are so, in a relationship with these people. Yeah, we want, it's, this forever. is a lot of work. I mean, yeah. some of these take, can take six months to figure out the pieces before they go live. Mm -hmm. So we want them to work. We don't want someone to have smart the other say, well, God, we, you know, you, we didn't realize that this care was delivered and it's in the bundle or something that because of information asymmetry. So um, we, we bend over backwards to be fair, to course correct if there's a new drug comes out that should be part of a bundle, for example, and isn't priced in. And we agreed, for example, what about something catastrophic? You know, the docs haven't signed up for that. So we agreed with most of our bundles, if something happens, let's say with a cabbage, someone has a uh, you know, a stroke or something, which is very expensive. We, we actually statistically drew the line in two sigma out, two standard deviations away from the mean, and said above that point it reverts to fee for service or out of the bundle because it, it isn't fair to you to put you in that situation where a catastrophic event could wipe out the, you know, all of the good you've done with all of your other yeah. patients. So it's yeah. really about sitting down at the table, being fair and doing something that works for everyone versus a typical contract negotiation framework under fee for service of we want to pay you less, you want us to pay you more. So again, this is you yeah. know, about how do we enlarge the pie through eliminating unnecessary costs. So that's, to me, a lot of the fun and, and, and very rewarding, and a lot of the docs are getting that. Yeah. Could you briefly describe what you mean by a bundle? Because I know there's there was a t there's a time element to it. There's a, there's a number of things that kind of keep something in or out of the bundle. Yeah. So a, a bundle is you know and you know in a sense a DRG is kind of a bundle for the hospitalization component alone, just for the for, for the facility portion. We're trying to put this on steroids with with guarantees. So a, a, an example would be a bundle. There's generally a trigger, and you can do this for chronic care. We're starting to play with diabetes procedures are are still complex, but they're simpler. So let's say a total knee replacement. Okay. Or, you know, it could be treating stage three colon cancer, but let's say a total knee. So we agree on a certain population, let's say we'll have a different bundle for those with bad heart disease or some other or revisions, but let's agree on a certain consistent population. And once we agree that they need a total knee, uh, we'll pay you through the bundle. And what that means is that all care after that point, all the pre-op work, the hospitalization, the rehab, um, the additional physicians who see that patient. So if, a, in a, if a, an internal medicine does a pre-op consultation, that's included in the bundle. It's coming. We're going to pay you this fixed amount, whatever the dollar value is. You're going to divvy it up. Although in, you know, in some models, you know, it's paid out and then recouped afterwards, which I don't think is effective managerially for influencing change. Get into the tragedy of the commons problem. Mm -hmm. Why should I be more efficient if he may not be in suck up all the excess? So we need an entity that actually is sophisticated. They can manage the pieces and the cash flows and manage the, the dollar payments to all the pieces of the delivery chain consistent with and commensurate with the value they're creating. But um, so it would include for procedure hospitalization, all of the physicians, you know, surgeon, anesthesiologist, um, the other physicians who may see them, post-op care, generally rehab, et cetera. 
and and generally we try to go out to a certain point in time ideally a year or two sometimes based on the groups they may not want to go out that far so if it if there's a year for example that means that any additional care during the time that's related to the total knee could be an ER visit, it could be a revision, it could be a hospitalization for infection or, or revision to the implant, you don't get paid extra for doing that. So we build in a little into the bundle based upon a cost allocation for that if you would. But if you believe that those are under, you know, that can be influenced by the physicians, which we think they can be, then it's fair to put that in there and to say this is now an opportunity for you to improve your margins by, by, being, uh, by thinking more about what you do and you don't do. And there's a lot of evidence uh, suggesting that those kind of models are very effective in driving care with the right partners. Again, we're starting to think about chronic disease as well, which is more complicated for reasons that are probably obvious. Mm -hmm. And beyond bundle, bundles, we're starting to think about outcomes-based payment for pharmaceuticals. So high-cost drugs are in the news lately, whether hepatitis C or the new PCSK9s for cholesterol. And each of those classes, for example, is is it's just, uh, they're, they're impacting our trend, our year-over-year -year increase in spend by over 1% each, just for, by one new class of drugs. Mm -hmm. And I just gave you two examples in the mm -hmm. past two years. So pharma companies are historically paid for pills, right? They don't know or care right. what happens once it, and, and we're telling more and more, no, you need to be paid for solutions. We're paying everybody else for outcomes you need to get with the program. Really? Fascinating. And again, the, you're getting a lot of here's why we can't do that, but we're starting to push pretty hard. That's when we're in the very early innings, and we're starting to talk about, okay, so you Novartis know, should say your, your new CHF drugs reduces hospitalization by 21%. And again, given there are data challenges and population identification issues, yes, but are you willing to pay us back some of our money if we don't see the hospitalization drop by that amount? Hey, it's your data. You know, we're not asking you to commit to something. That's what you said on that when you applied for the FDA labeling. So, right. um, and, and again, initially it's here's why we can't, and now we're starting to push them. And particularly where we as, we're, we as payers are being more selective, so more and more we're likely to say, yes, you can have this one hep C drug, but not the other. And we're likely to do that with, with other classes as well, where we see them both as being highly effective and equally safe. A lot of our, you know, a lot of our decisions relating to our formulary are likely to be around, are you willing to change the, the thought process to one where you're putting your money where your mouth is? Wow, what a fascinating idea. So it's, it's, that's cutting edge and as part of the fund as well. Yeah, neat. Looking at it kind of at a strategic level, we've seen a, a lot of consolidation with health insurers over the last several years, particularly after the passage of the ACA. From your perspective, why is this happening? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. Number one, there's, there are certain benefits in economy of scale. So when you talk about something like the exchanges, which is you know, a fear they could promote commoditization, everyone's looking at the lowest cost premium, there's more pressure to reduce cost. And certainly taking an expensive claim system and distributing the cost, if you would, among you know, 20 million lives instead of 2 million is clearly more cost effective and allows for less of an administrative overhead. That, that's, that's one point. And you know, uh, some large payers, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on their web portals on, on how they go retail and, and, and engage consumers. As a smaller plan, you don't have the resource to be doing that. Another issue is that, and this is kind of an arms race, there is benefit to strength and contract. And again, there is some you know, restrictions that the FTC looks at. But we, we see the providers consolidating very quickly. Okay. So the, the, there's so a something. Bit of an arms race? There is a bit of an arms race. So okay. the, in some cases, the providers have a lot of market power. And um, you know, if you don't if you if you don't represent a large population, you, you're worried about your ability to you know to negotiate favorable deals, uh, you know, based on contracts. 
Okay. I think there's benefits of being smaller. We're more nimble. I can come up with a new outcomes-based model and get it through here a lot quicker than many of the larger entities. So you know, there there are benefits to being nimble, but that is what is driving that, and, and I think it's likely to continue. Um, you know, in the industry. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you being part of the, the program. You're most welcome. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.